welcome to the uh, Christmas edition podcast from Nuria Thematics, which will be the last one for the year. And welcome to you, Victor. Lovely to have you here with me, as always, for a nice little talk about a very, very eventful year. Great to be back. And uh, yeah, as you said, an eventful year. And I think it's, it's going to be a, an interesting talk going through all the different reports that we've written and, and everything that's happened during the year. We, we do have a few things to talk about, I think, today, which is nice, well, we usually do, but even more than usual. It has been quite a year. We have, from the thematics team, produced eight different Nudeoni Mind reports, and we have done, of course, like every year, our annual treasury study. And we thought in this Christmas edition podcast, we should have a talk about some of those findings from the different reports we've done, just to kind of sum up the year a little. And the topics have been very varied. Um, we have been waiting, I guess you could say, for the past year to see a post-pandemic new normal. There's been very, very quick technological and behavioral change, driven on by the pandemic initially, of course, but then continuing after that. We have seen in our various reports those topics explored in areas like e-commerce. We've looked more at ESG. We've looked at leverage for companies if it affects their value creation. We have looked at banking regulations, of all topics. topic that we, we didn't expect it to be such a hit, but it turned out to be. And it's really nice to see that uh, things play out a bit differently from what you might think, and that actually a topic like banking regulations can be perceived as sexy. Interesting experience. And we've also looked at another kind of exotic topic, which is cryptocurrencies. A lot of fun with that one, I think. We should have a few words about that. But I think of all these, a good place to start is probably the annual treasury study, based on an online survey, as, as always. And I guess this year's treasury study for us was something of an autopsy of uh, the COVID-19 shock to the economy and, and, and how it affected corporates, especially when it comes to uh, financial performance, right? I think you could describe it as kind of taking the pulse of, of the economy. How, how has the economy as a whole been, been performing? Uh, but more specifically, since it's, it's a survey-based analysis, looking at how have the different corporates in the Nordic region actually been able to uh, handle the pandemic and what have they needed to, to do in order to survive as well as they have. Uh, and I think that's one of the, the takeaways, that, that corporates have typically survived uh, quite well. Uh, we, we've talked about this before, and it's, of course, a mix of uh, unprecedented state support. But we also want to give the uh, give the fair share of credit to the corporates themselves, having been quite quick, especially given the nature of this, this pandemic, uh, but having remarkably quick in taking precautionary measures and, and safeguarding their business uh, against a potential downturn, which for many actually turned out to, to be less severe than, than many had anticipated. And last year's Treasury study had as its theme the digital of the business models of the large corporates and how that affected the treasury and the finance function. And we did uh, a little quick recap and, and, and picked that up again and asked about how has this pandemic mode that they've been in, which has dominated the agenda for most of the past year, affected the level of urgency or priority in digitalizing business models and automating the work in treasury and seeing that actually it's, it's accelerated because the pandemic has driven a lot of behavioral change, which has made companies prioritize even more greatly uh, the journey to to deliver more in new digital alternative ways, but that's that's not only uh, a theme for the treasury study, but also a theme we recognize pretty well in several of our on the mind reports during the year. I think that, that holds true for for as you say quite a lot of the different topics that we we've written about, and, and e-commerce is, is definitely one of them. And e-commerce, as as I think everyone will will understand, has a lot to do with digitalization, right? But also with, with a, a change in, in consumer behaviors. And we even named our new on your mind report e-commerce and Corona. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> quite quite a catchy name. And uh, yes, yeah, so so in these treasury reports, 
we've seen, as you mentioned, you want the, the higher focus on digitalization. But I think the key here is that this is a trend that has been ongoing. And we've seen the same kind of factors play out, both in terms of internal digitalization within corporates. So it's become more and more relevant as a result of Corona. And we've seen the same thing within e-commerce. So it was a growing segment uh, and growing very rapidly. Uh, but as a result of the pandemic, this has absolutely exploded. So it, it, it's uh, gone from, from simply having a, a great growth to, to having an absolutely outstanding growth. And the really cool thing this time has been that we have been able to measure this in a completely new way. Exactly. So, so one of the really interesting things is that we were able to use internal Nordea card data in order to see exactly just how much uh, this has actually grown and, and what share of our consumer spending uh, is actually in the online segment. And, and just to, to, uh, to cover our bases here, uh, we of course want to tell you all that, that this is uh, aggregated anonymous data, so, so we can't uh, in, in any way see anything other than, than a high-level aggregate uh, based on, on completely anonymous data. And this data is, is, I think it's around 10 million credit card customers, so, so Nordea card customers, which of course gives a, a very interesting and very detailed view on the, the growth in terms of, of e-commerce. And uh, as we mentioned, it's absolutely skyrocketed during uh, or as a result of the COVID pandemic. And one way for us to model this that we do in the report, you could kind of simply summarize that the COVID effect has been about four years of, of growth in online retail penetration. So comparing the pre-COVID trend, if you will, the COVID pandemic has actually led to about four years of, of uh, additional growth. And it's kind of natural to see why, I think, in that we can all probably remember how drastically our everyday life changed when we had all these restrictions coming in during the first wave of the pandemic where we were almost stuck at home for a period. So we needed to do a lot of things, including shopping in different ways. And then, and then we have opted to continue doing it to a much greater extent, even when we were not forced to, because we got used to it or found that it actually worked really well. Exactly. And, and I think the, the dynamic as, as well is that the more you shop online or, or the more people shop online, the better the offering typically gets. Uh, one of the areas that we, we've looked at specifically is, is food retail. And that is one of the areas that's seen tremendous growth over the years, but it's, it's kind of come from a more immature marketplace than other segments of online retail. So electronics, for example, or, or books uh, that have seen a high high share of online retail over quite some time, whereas food retail ha- has started at quite low levels. But as a result of the pandemic and as a result of, of what you're describing, you want, it's kind of been forced upon us. And as it's, it has been forced upon us, uh, you naturally seen the, the offering increase, the, the logistics behind it uh, become even better. And uh, this is one, one of the areas that we think will, will continue to grow. It's is very much here to stay. But from uh, from that, I, I think we can move on quite quickly here since you mentioned the, the kind of w- change in, in how we work and where we have been spending our time, uh, which of course has been one of the reasons uh, for, for, for this increase in, in e-commerce. But we also looked at this uh, from, from a different perspective, you could say, uh, in terms of where do we work and, and where do we do what type of work in our report called Office Space. Indeed, and uh, it was natural for us to choose that title for the report, of course, since we were pretty clear about what we wanted to explore, which was the new ways of working and how it might affect our need for and our use of office premises going forward, which is, of course, interesting from a number of different perspectives. But it was also a fantastic opportunity for us to pay homage to one of our favorite cult comedy movies with the title Office Space from 1999. For any listeners who have not seen that movie, we would strongly from the thematics team recommend that you do. We even pay tribute to it in our presentation on the topic. We could not help ourselves. And of course, we, we couldn't simply avoid using that title. No. 
it had to be done. Yeah, yeah it had to be done. Um, so I'm happy that uh, that's now sorted. And in the report, we note with great interest that based on Google mobility data for people in the Nordic region, when making the comparison of normal levels of workplace mobility, in other words, how much time we spend traveling to or from work or at work before the pandemic and during the pandemic and after the pandemic, we can see that, of course, there was a huge reduction in workplace mobility when social distancing measures were in effect. But even by September this year, after most of those societal restrictions had been lifted to a very great extent, workplace mobility remained pretty far below the levels they were prior to the pandemic, meaning that even when we were not forced to, we had a greater level of remote working for all of those who have white-collar jobs out there in the economy than was the case before. Taking an even longer perspective, I mean, why would this continue to be the case, if if I ask that question? Similar to what we saw in e-commerce and shopping habits, what has happened to a degree is that many have discovered that having an element of flexibility in the ways that you work has been extremely helpful and actually helped productivity. The flexibility makes it possible to accomplish even more by not necessarily needing to be at your office or at your desk every day at all working days during the year. And and this could have big potential implications for how much office space will we need, what will we use it for, and how does it need to be configured. And we believe that a lot of this change that we have seen, as already indicated by the reduced workplace mobility, even after societal restrictions have been lifted, will be more permanent in nature. And that this means that going forward, there is going to be a need for more of a reason and perhaps different reasons for us to actually go to the office to work. It's not just that it's the norm that we do, but it is more a matter of if we are going to bother doing it, we do it because what we want to do in the office is different from what we are able to do or do better at home or somewhere else working remotely. Would you say that the purpose of the office has has become more clear than it was before? I think that's the trend that we are seeing and then that's going to crystallize more clearly in the coming years to what degree this is going to happen. But overall, what we conclude in the report is that There is a potential there, a great potential there, to reduce the amount of office space needed in headquarters, buildings or similar for white-collar employees. But that will require flexibility also on part of the employer in terms of spreading out the number of people who will be off in the office at the same time at any given point in time. Because if everybody shows up on Tuesdays and Wednesdays and Thursdays and nobody on Mondays and Fridays, you're still going to need offices which can house everybody there at the same time during those days of the week. So there needs to be a flexibility in the flow of people people coming into work. But there's also, we think, going to be pretty significantly increased polarization in the need for and the demand for different types of office buildings, because you will need to have buildings in attractive locations with good technology so that you're able to connect with people who are joining in remotely with good Wi-Fi screens, audio equipment, and all those things necessary to work on that basis, and which also have areas within the buildings which are good for collaborative work. So very old-fashioned, traditional headquarters buildings with vast office cubicle landscapes are not going to be in such great demand simply because that is not what you need them for. So collaborative space, but also this interface between the people working from home, people working in the office. So the technological aspects, uh, the the digitalization aspect, as well as as the, the collaborative aspect. And the location and the quality of the building needs probably in many cases to be such that you actually tempt your employees to want to come in and use the offices to work doing those things as their ability 
to work remotely is much greater than it was before, and that's therefore a more easy option for them to, to choose as an alternative. Perhaps related to behavioral changes, we we have written yet another report on the topic of uh, of uh, ESG. The, the topic of ESG is not one of these behavioral changes that has been kind of catalyzed as much or, or as has uh, materialized from the COVID pandemic itself. But this is more of a, of a long-term nature that we've seen this development within the ESG area, uh, with it becoming more important, typically for everyone in society, from consumers to, to corporates to investors, etc. And uh, this is also why we've looked at different types of ESG topics over quite some time. This year, we, we wrote, wrote a report called ESG Reaping the Rewards. Uh, so you want, if you want to share what we looked at this time, what is new this time around? And, and I think the title is kind of telling in that there, there is, well, if you want to be a bit mean, you could say that, the, that there is a new ESG specialist born every day of the week. Uh, <laughs> it, it's, of course, an area where there is such a rapid behavioral change and where the demands and expectations from society are developing so quickly that there is also a need for a lot of new specialists in this area to be able to help, not least, companies navigate uh, how to, to address this. We, as always, when we write our thematic reports, try and take the large corporate perspective and we wanted to be pretty concrete in how we approach the topic this time. It's a favourite. We keep coming back to ESG topics. It's, it's, I mean, they tend to be very long-term and strategic, so it's natural for us to look at them in our thematic research. And there are a lot of things happening. Exactly. And in this case, what we wanted to do was to look at ESG ratings as a tool to measure is a corporate performing strongly or weakly when it comes to sustainability. It's a very natural potential tool to use, but it is a pretty new area. Uh, they have been around for 10, 12 years in, in a meaningful way, meaning that it's a bit of the Wild West in the sense that there is not nearly as much harmonization between different rating providers as you would find in the very mature area of credit ratings. They differ greatly. The methodologies and approaches uh, have, a, have a huge level of divergence, meaning that as a corporate, you can be forgiven for being a bit confused about how can we be so different in the eyes of different rating providers? How can the outcome be so different depending on who actually actually rates us for ESG. In essence, there isn't this this standardized way of measuring ESG. You know, I think that arises naturally from from the question: What exactly is ESG? Because different different people or dif- different entities w- w- would say different things. Uh, and I guess it also has a lot to do with what specifically are you looking at? What is the purpose of looking at specific ESG factors for you as an investor or for you as as a corporate? And one of these aspects that we've seen quite a, quite heavy development within these ESG ratings specifically. Uh, you mentioned the methodologies, but, but one key part of that is the data. And this for sure has been one of the areas where, where there's been tremendous growth in not only data availability, in terms of how many corporates are covered and what data points are they sharing, uh, but also data quality. So, Because if you have a lot of data for a lot of corporates, if the data isn't, isn't as accurate as you would like it to be, then, then of course that lowers the value. And all of this made it obvious to us that this is something that corporates need to be aware of and may need some help and guidance in how to think about it, since obviously decisions on what data to report can be pretty important decisions because it'll require resources and you don't want to make a bet that turns out to go horribly wrong. And then the really juicy part of the report is is where we take a closer look at a bit like you described, because there is now data available to actually analyze it, do companies get rewarded financially for being good at ESG as measured by ESG ratings? And do they? And the, the very comforting answer then, and something that actually, I guess, relieved us to a great degree, is that uh, they absolutely do. And not just a little, they get massively rewarded in a number of different metrics, such as greater total shareholder return, higher return on capital, lower share price volatility. It's pretty compelling when you look at the data.
But it's hard to imagine that we would in any year not write any Nodi on your mind reports about themes or topics very much at the core of our home turf of funding and capital structure. I mean, we do work for a bank. Obviously, 2021 has not been an exception. So we have also seen, nicely I think, that one of the big hits of this year's reports has been the Nodi on your mind we titled The Hunt for the Right Leverage. I remember quite clearly when we started working on this that that one of the the natural starting points was beginning with the theory. And and the theory within the the topic of does capital structure matter for for valuation, uh, you quickly, quickly start uh, reading about uh, Nobel laureates and, uh, and the Nobel Prize uh, winners, uh, Modigliani Miller. Uh, and I, I remember specifically you having a lot of fun with this, you won uh, quite, uh, quite early on, uh, stating that going to be quite interesting, kind of challenging the views of, of these Nobel laureates. Exactly. What do they know? <laughs> right? So we can do better. And, and, and uh, well, jokingly aside, it, it's a great way of illustrating a point when you try to look at a theme like this quantitatively and see what the data actually tells you. And it was, I think it's fair to say, a formidable challenge to actually do this analysis because of the complexity in, in getting the data, structuring the data, and then trying to analyze it and draw some real conclusions. But we were delighted to see that we could see very, very strong and compelling conclusions kind of going against the, the Nobel laureate's uh, theory. Um, and, and what we could see very clearly was that as a static analysis, if you do as a corporate have higher leverage than your peers, you tend to get rewarded with a higher valuation. And intuitively that makes sense because you have a lower cost of capital if you have more debt, so that should be the case. But at the same time, we all know that there are risks about having a high financial leverage, of course. And therefore, we of course decided to not sort of settle for that static analysis, but also look at a dynamic uh, analysis where we looked at performance over time. Uh, and before we get into that, what, what happened to the corporates that had a lower leverage well, compared to their sector peers? There it's, it's kind of split into two different potential outcomes where they tend not to be valued in line with their peers, but rather either be punished with a valuation discount or be rewarded with a valuation premium. It's more of a dynamic kind of way of working within the, the less leveraged. And, and, and very naturally linked to the key deciding factor in if you get punished or rewarded being what is the reason that you communicate and, and are you successful in persuading the capital markets that this reason makes sense for why you have a lower leverage? And as you said, we weren't quite satisfied with this static view. So, so over time then, uh, what happens to value creation? We decided that we need to look over time because that can make such a huge difference. And in this case, it really does. And it makes a bigger difference than the valuation premium you may achieve from having higher leverage as static analysis. And we can see that actually the companies with the lowest leverage compared with their peers are with a substantial outperformance over time. So a higher valuation in the moment for those with high leverage, but over time a significant underperformance if you have high leverage. Exactly. And on the other hand, either higher or lower valuation if you have a lower leverage, but over time uh, quite substantial benefit from, from, from uh, running with this lower, lower leverage. I think that's a good summary. And uh, the, 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 the easy message to convey is avoid the extremes. Have a leverage which is not far out at the end of the spectrum uh, in either direction. However, having looked at the financial leverage, uh, the other report during the year, which was, I think you can describe it as very much within our home turf, in a way, unexpectedly, not unexpectedly, but undesirably so, uh, was a, uh, a Nodioni Mind report about bank regulation. Um, and how exciting that this turned out to be a hit. I think we w- were all surprised given the, the nature of the topic, but at the same time, when we when we started looking into it and when we started working on the report, uh, 
and we're of course uh, talking about the, the new Basel regulation. But when we started looking into it, we, we kind of quickly understood why it would be uh, a popular theme, since it is quite a uh, quite a bit of a mess. It, it's quite hard to understand, and and I think one of the reasons is that the, the kind of the number of pages from the Basel committee documenting the entire framework is something along the lines of 1,600. So so just going about uh, going from that starting point, of course it's going to be a lot to, to delve into, but at the same time just simply doing our research and, and, and Googling uh, as much as we could, it was also quite hard to get an understanding of, of kind of the, the key themes or, or the, the key aspects of the framework. So, so, so we, we kind of quickly in this work uh, found our way our, our way to, to including this more kind of descriptive part uh, regarding the, bo- uh, the new Basel fr- uh, framework. And, and, and simply structuring it and, and highlighting the, the key aspects of uh, the new regulations uh, seem to have been, been appreciated, uh, which we are, of course, uh, very happy about. So what we looked at is, is uh, what is happening, uh, what does it seek to achieve, and, and then, uh, of course, more importantly, how will this ultimately perhaps influence uh, corporates. And that is not going to be a lot of fun. And I think that uh, that could be the, the key conclusion in this area. So a lot of the changes that we see in these regulations and, and this new Basel framework has to do uh, about regulations on the banks themselves. So not a direct effect on the corporates, uh, but it affects heavily the uh, our ability to, to uh, lend to corporates. And more specifically, it affects uh, uh, ultimately, uh, the pricing, uh, the price point, uh, because w- what it often entails is that that banks will need to have a higher, higher uh, uh, capital buffer, uh, which uh, of course locks up more capital uh, and and uh, unfavorably uh, would affect corporates uh, that are unrated. So taking all this together and the different different uh, methodology changes in this this new framework. Uh, the, the, the kind of uh, main losers, you could say, uh, are the unrated corporates. Funding becoming more expensive for them. Exactly. Speaking of expensive, Yuan, uh, you mentioned early on that we've had a, a quite interesting look into the topic of cryptocurrencies. And, and I, I think it uh, probably hasn't avoided anyone's attention that, that this is an area that is being talked a lot about. But at the same time, it, it's uh, quite hard to actually know who to listen to, who to trust, and, and what is actually happening. Because a lot of people have different agendas, and a lot of people are, are oftentimes pushing this, this concept of cryptocurrencies uh, quite heavily. So we had a look at this. Uh, as I said, speaking of expensive, just, just one thing that we highlight in our report about this is that uh, Bitcoin, for example, has, has uh, I think it was something of a 15,000% increase in the last five or six years. Which is a good return compared with what you get on a 10-year German government bond. Um, so understandable that there is a lot of interest, of course, but it's not just interest. I mean, you can very, very justifiably describe what we're seeing and have seen for the past couple of years, not least when it comes to cryptocurrencies, as massive hype. I think it's been easily one of the most fun topics this year, uh, and, and not least because there is such immense hype and so much smoke and mirrors around this topic that we really were quite keen to try and disperse and see what's really going on. We wanted to give kind of a, a light-hearted and easily digestible description of what they are and, and, and uh, how they work and, of course, uh, why there's been this, this massive hype around them. So, so we're not going to dig deeper into the specifics of how cryptocurrencies work in this summarizing podcast, uh, 
but I think you can safely safely just uh, state that that currently we don't really see any major use case uh, for corporates uh, when it comes to cryptocurrencies. No, and to be very clear, we do consider blockchain technology to be super interesting, and I think both you and I have the personal views that that uh, there there are in the future very likely going to be highly interesting and also for large corporates useful applications coming based on blockchain technology. Looking at today's cryptocurrencies, that's not really it. There is, at the moment, from a typical Nordic large corporate perspective, not any compelling functional use case, any actual useful reason to to make payments or receive payments with cryptocurrencies. And in addition to this, uh, you have the ESG aspect as well. Which is dual, I guess, in in, in that on the one hand, uh, you you have a a reputational risk problem uh, being associated with a means of payment where a great share of the volumes they are used for today being related to illicit purposes. And, and, and that's, of course, an ESG risk that few large corporates are particularly keen on taking. But the other aspect is because of Bitcoin being the biggest cryptocurrency in use in the world today, representing about half of the total value of all cryptocurrencies. Uh, Bitcoin being designed in a way that because of its verification mechanism requiring a lot of calculations and processing power, there being inevitably a, a huge energy consumption uh, necessary to just process Bitcoin transactions. Uh, and, and that's also an ESG problem, which by design cannot go away. So so being able to get around that, you would need to have other cryptocurrencies than, than Bitcoin. And of course, you have the aspect of, of the illicit spending uh, when it comes to cryptocurrencies. So, so cryptocurrencies, or at least some of them, uh, or, or the majority of them, depending on how you, how you look at it, uh, are used uh, in, in criminal activities. And ultimately, with these ESG risks, uh, as we mentioned before, uh, since ESG is a topic that is that is developing, it's it's maturing and it's growing in its importance. Uh, th- this this simply won't go away. These worries about uh, ESG uh, related to cryptocurrencies, uh, and I think our our takeaway is that that corporates need to be aware of this and and need to look at it with uh, with the view that uh, that they don't want to end up in in a scandal related to to this, uh, since it will negatively affect their their ESG uh, work and, and their ESG scores, and, and of course how they are viewed uh, by society. That's something that both they and their owners will care deeply about. And then speaking of owners, uh, this is one of the, the, the more recent report that we released. Uh, this was a really interesting topic for us to look at, because we, we wrote this report called The Ideal Owner, and in this report we, we were kind of curious to have a look at whether the type of owner uh, actually matters for financial performance and value creation uh, for corporates. And, and I think the starting point for us that was that a lot of us, our, our listeners, as well as you and I, Yuan, uh, we have our views on, on how, what different owners are, are like and, and what priorities they have. And, and I guess we wanted to check uh, whether or not, or not these, uh, these assumptions are true and, and how they affect uh, corporate performance. Definitely. And we were also curious about what does ownership of European large companies actually look like? Who are the big owners out there? Um, So we needed to decide what kind of data to try and look at to explore this topic. And it was a bit of a challenge, uh, but we opted to analyze listed large companies all over Europe. So we decided on all companies with a market value of 500 million euros or more, which gave a universe of about 2,200 companies. So again, like several times this year, a pretty big analysis. Big analysis, a lot of data, a lot of challenges, of course, in, in obtaining the data and being able to, to analyze it, but but uh, a lot of interesting findings, you could say. Absolutely, and to try and be able to 
see any differences and also to get a clear view of what the ownership landscape looks like. We, in the end, opted to split different types of, of shareholders of these listed companies into four owner categories. Uh, so we split them up into financial institutions, private equity, state or government, and strategic entities. A strategic entities, just to be clear, that's the sort of owner which would be a founder, an entrepreneur, a family, a family office, or a foundation, or an investment company. So some sort of entity where the owner has a long-term commitment and involvement in the business, which goes beyond a pure investment in a share. And simply aggregating this data and looking at the, the ownership landscape in, in, in Europe, we found, I guess you could say, three different ways of, of ownership depending on region. Exactly. When you look across Europe, uh, who the big owners are, one way of getting a better understanding of the ownership approaches that you can find is to split them into three different what we call ownership models. There is the continental European ownership model, where typically you have a strategic entity as a major owner in listed companies, and where typically that strategic entity has a pretty significant ownership stake, so that there is a large influential owner. And, and strategic entity in this case are, are the what you mentioned before, so investment companies, for example, with, with a, perhaps a longer time horizon in their investments, but also the state-owned corporates, so, so those with a strategic agenda that goes beyond the, the purely financial agenda. And typically with a long-term time horizon uh, for their ownership. And in contrast to this continental model, there is the Anglo-Saxon ownership model, which is what I usually would call companies which have widely held shares. And, and, and the way that looks is that the overwhelming majority of the ownership of the listed companies is financial institutions, investors, and you would also typically find that no individual owner is that big relative to the others. So a typical large corporate in the Anglo-Saxon ownership model in Europe represented represented by the UK would see a, a very sort of broad ownership of many different financial institutions rather than one player with a long-term agenda having an influential uh, ownership stake. And the third category is what we could call, I guess, the Nordic ownership model, which is more of a hybrid. It lies in between the Anglo-Saxon at one end and the continental European model at the other end, where it's a little bit different from country to country in the Nordics um, and where it's, it's not really that close to either end of those other two. And then using this categorization of, uh, of the data uh, and looking at how it affects value creation and, and financial performance, uh, I guess the, the simple question is, uh, does it? And the answer is fortunately yes, in a big way. And that was also, I think it's fair to say for us, a big relief given the complexity of the data. But we found, I think it's fair to say, even more striking conclusions when we looked at the data than we had hoped to be, to be able to see uh, when we started the work on it. There are very clear differences in the level of leverage um, and the level of return on capital and also investments, capital expenditure for companies with different types of owners. Those are very notable and they pretty much conform to, I think, the expectations typical observers, you and me included, would have uh, before doing the analysis. Just to mention one example, uh, listed companies with a major private equity owner do invest considerably less relative to, to those with other types of owners. So that kind of confirms how we perceive that the value creation model for private equity uh, players works. But there are also, very, very importantly, big differences in performance over time. Looking at total shareholder returns, the companies which have strategic entities as a major owner have by far the best performance over time when it comes to value creation. And interestingly, companies with the state as a major owner have by far the worst total shareholder value creation over time. So, so it's it's quite the case of of you know a clear 
difference in how the company is run and, and then what it results in, in in terms of, of value creation and total shareholder return. Um, but if I want, I want to put you on the spot here, you want to just, if you want to summarize here the, the key reasons behind behind this, why is there such a big difference in, in terms of returns? That, that is truly the interesting question to ask if there is a, a single driver or factor which accounts for why the differences are so great. But if... if and, and I, I wouldn't really claim to have the universal answer, but if I wanted to make an attempt at describing why it seems to look the way it does, the way I would describe it is that it seems like companies with a strategic entity as a major shareholder have been the best historically at finding the sort of sweet spot, the ideal balance between investing for the future but also having operational excellence and the discipline in their spending not to take those big decisions which are really turning out to, to be to be very, very bad with consequences for years. So, so I think it's a matter of getting the balance right where that's where they come out so well. And uh, with that, I, I think we have run out of reports to talk about for this year. Yeah. Um, but what a year it's been. We've written about quite uh, quite a few uh, different things, uh, and I, I guess they, they vary wildly in, in, in their themes. Uh, and it's been quite interesting not only to follow up on, on the effects of, of the, the COVID pandemic, uh, but also to have a more uh, perhaps uh, longer-term look at, at different aspects, such as the, the ideal owners, for example, or, or what may come of the, the boss of regulations. Uh, but then uh, summarizing the year you want and then looking forward, what, what do we have in store? We, we, as always, have plenty in store. But, but starting off with what the year has been like, I, I think that if we just want to reflect a little on what has been the sort of common denominator deciding that the themes we brought up in our reports during 2021 have been the ones that they were, there has, of course, been a huge influence from the pandemic and the pandemic situation, which has dominated the agenda. So that that has had a, a decisive influence on our choices of topics. But I think that, to be fair, several of the topics we've written about in the Mind Mind reports in 2021, we probably would have picked and opted to explore, even if there had not been a pandemic. But maybe they have become even more obvious because of the pandemic. And And I think that our hope and our expectation would be that there wouldn't be the same influence from the COVID-19 situation on the pipeline of topics we would like to write about in the coming year. So 2022 should be a bit different from that point of view. And we have plenty in store uh, for the year to come. Just like in 2021 and in previous years, the topics we will write about tend to be long-term and strategic in nature to a very great degree, typically about structural changes rather than temporary changes in uh, the business cycle or, or other, I don't know, lighter winds blowing in either direction. And to give a little bit of a teaser, I think this is a good opportunity to, to do that in the Christmas edition podcast. The first new Nodioni Mind report in 2022 is planned to be a revisit to one of our long-term favorites, uh, Capital Expenditure by Corporates. And this time we wanted to take a closer look at a topic uh, in the context of sustainability. So um, maybe not winning more prizes for originality in that respect, but it, it's not just yet another Not Only Mind report about ESG. It's actually looking at ESG as a driver and the, and the potential really driver of sea change in corporate investments in the coming years because of the impact that sustainability and the need to achieve climate goals set globally 
to ensure the survival of the planet uh, could could be such a, a, a huge factor for how much and in which areas and, and in what companies will invest in the coming years. And it could even be the factor reviving corporate investments in the coming years, given that we have in prior reports seen that corporates have invested less recently than, than they have done further back in the past. So the working title for the first Nordea of Mind of 2022 is the uh, very humble-sounding capital expenditure for saving the world. That should be a reasonable way to start the season, I think. We would absolutely hope so, at least. Definitely. So with that, thank you all for listening. Uh, it's been a pleasure, as always, to talk to you, Victor. Look forward to a new season after the Christmas and the New Year festive season. Uh, we wish all of you a Merry Christmas from us in the Thematics team. Thank you. Thank you.